Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. As you're turning there, the story is told about a series of meetings that was held with some college-age students by one particular campus minister. Uh, The topics uh, ranged across the spectrum. Uh, This group talked about all sorts of different doctrines in the Word of God. They talked about hell. They talked about dating. But each conversation had three rules. The students were required to be honest, to be gracious, and to be present. On one night, the students were in this little small group gathering there on the college campus, and they wanted to discuss discuss habitual sins. And just a quick aside, why does that not typically come up in your adult Sunday school class? Right? Right? Good for these college students, amen? And by the way, I'm being serious. Some of our Sunday school classes, adults, grown-ups, older folks could learn a lesson from college students. They wanted to talk about habitual sins. Although they struggled with the variety of sinful behaviors, what they all agreed on, this one thing that was common, no matter their particular struggle, was this. They all agreed on one thing. They believed that God was extremely disappointed with them. One student said, my parents were students at a Christian college in the early 90s when a revival broke out. They were on fire for God, and here I am consumed by sin day after day. Often through tears, many other students shared similar stories about how they believe God must be disappointed with them because of their struggle with sin. After listening to their stories, the campus minister asked, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? Every hand in the small group went up. Every hand. How many of you grew up in a Bible-centered church? These kids who all agreed on one thing, that is God must be disappointed with them because they struggled daily with sin, they all raised their hand. Raised in Christian homes, raised in Bible-centered churches. And yet all of them agreed that God was extremely disappointed with them. Maybe you can relate. Here's my question for you this morning. What does God think of you today? What does God, not anybody else, what do you think God thinks of you right now. Because you see, however you answer that question will be the same answer to the question, how do you think of yourself today? How do you perceive yourself right now? Isn't that funny how that works? God, here's the good news, wants each of us to live every day with confidence in who He has made us to be in and through Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the right answer because there is a right answer to that question. We're going to look at that answer this morning. But first, as we continue in our study of the, uh, the letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, we've been taking this book under the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. We're in chapter 8 at the very beginning, and this is message number 18. There is no telling how long it'll take us to 
to finish this book and, and how many times it'll take us opening it up to, 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 to fully understand and, 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 and begin to understand uh, all that's here. But the gospel of the righteousness of God. What's the letter about? It's about the good news that the very righteousness that God requires of you and of me in his holiness and justice, he gives through the life, death, and resurrection of his own son as a gift to you to be taken by faith. Isn't that amazing? That is good news. And it's beautiful that the God who requires righteousness, 100% perfect righteousness from us because he's holy, realizes you and I fall short of that every day. We are sinners. None of us is righteous. No, not one. None of us even seeks God. And yet he has sought us, and in the seeking, he's provided righteousness through the life, perfect life, sin-atoning death and resurrection victoriously over sin of his son Jesus. So now, what you need from God, you can simply... Take from God as a gift by faith. Tim Keller has said of this amazing book, the book of Romans is the most sustained explanation of the heart of the gospel and the most thrilling exploration of how that gospel goes to work in our hearts. As Paul wrote to the Romans, he longed for them to love and to live the gospel. Romans 8, in particular, has been called the most beautiful in this collection of rare and expensive gems of Holy Scripture, even uh, the most amazing chapter in all of the Bible. And it's possible. It's likely. We're fixing to dive off into a chapter over the next few weeks that is absolutely amazing. And in this one chapter... Romans chapter 8, it contains a summary of the whole of the Christian life, from even, even from eternity past through eternity future. That's a long, long time, isn't it? Some of y'all missed that, but you'll catch it later on. Um, and, and in every step of our salvation history along the way, everything that God has done for us in Christ and ever will do for us in Jesus, it's here. And what it looks like to follow Jesus, it's here. What we're expecting when Jesus comes back, it's in Romans 8. It's all there. This morning, I want you to think with me about Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The title of the message today, Pure and Empowered in Jesus. Who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? You are pure and empowered in Jesus if you're in him today. And what that means, to answer our question in brief from earlier, how does God think of you today? God sees every believer as pure as Jesus and empowered by His Spirit to grow in holiness. Hello? Are you alive? Because let me just tell you, if you've ever amened anything in your life, this would be the moment. How does, how does God see you today? Maybe, it's, maybe you didn't amen, and, and I'm being serious. I hope, hope I'm also trying to keep you engaged because apparently you're sleepy. But maybe the reason you didn't amen is because you're not buying. 
That God sees every believer as pure as Jesus and empowered by the Spirit to grow in holiness. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you don't think it's true for you. So let me show you from the text. Two realities of our salvation that we see in these verses. First of all, we are free from God's condemnation. Verse 1, there is therefore, listen, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's just kind of back, back into this. If you're in Christ Jesus today, we'll talk more about that as we go through. You'll, if you don't know what that means in this moment, you'll, you'll figure it out. It means you've trusted him for that righteousness that we talked about a while ago. If you are in Christ Jesus, how many of you would testify today and say, I am in Christ Jesus? I'm looking forward. We've got one among us this morning who came, came to me. I love this when this happens. He came to me this morning. He said, hey, when can I give my testimony? I said, anytime you want. You just let me know. And he said, he saved my life. I can't wait to tell the church about what he did in my life. How about anybody? Anybody else? No, I mean, do you have a story to tell? Raise your hand if you're saved, what I'm trying to say. Now, you should be right behind him, FYI. There is, therefore, so if you're in Christ, listen to what it says of you. There is, therefore, now. Not when you get everything cleaned up that you're struggling with that we talked about from Romans 7 last week, right? Let's just, let's just be college students for a minute. Can we do that? How many of you are struggling with sin on a daily basis? By the way, remember what I said last week? If you're not, that's a real problem. So you want to be raising your hand at this point. You want to be confessing this, admitting this. Because if you're not struggling against sin, you are giving in to sin. You are most likely in this moment living in sin, okay? If you're not struggling against sin. I'm not saying those of us struggling against it don't give in. The point is, if, if there's no struggle, you're, you're dead in it, maybe. Or at least asleep in it, Right? This verse says that there is therefore now. Paul coming off of Romans 7 where he's just said, as I'm walking with Jesus, as I'm trying to walk with Jesus, trying to follow him, I find myself that what I, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. What I, what I do want to do, what the law calls me to do, I don't do that. And then he turns the corner of chapter 8 and he just says, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no section in, in between 7 and 8 where he says, oh, don't worry, though, I got all that cleaned up now. Now it's true of me. Now, because I no longer struggle with sin, I no longer have anything where I'm, 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 I'm having to battle. Now, there's no condemnation. No, that's not what he says. There is, therefore, now, even in the midst of your struggles, no condemnation. No condemnation. We are free from condemnation. Now, Romans has made it clear, has it not? The verdict for all of humanity was condemned by a holy God. Eternally condemned by a holy God. That's where we were before we became to be in Christ. But Jesus changed all of that for all who trust him today. 
You remember back in Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, what's the result? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying Romans 5, 1, Romans 8, 1, they're saying the same thing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you have peace with God? You can't have peace with God if, you still, if you're still under God's condemnation. Amen? To have peace with God, you must be freed from the just condemnation of God. And the only way to do that is to be in Christ who took care of that for you. Backing up a little bit further in, in our study in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. We're not gonna, I'm not going to re-preach this section, but I want to read it. What a powerful passage about the work of Jesus Christ for us. This is how he made peace with God for us. This is how he he removed the condemnation of God from us for now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In this particular passage, when he says the righteousness of God, he's referring to the righteousness of God that you need but don't have that he's given in Jesus. Okay? Everybody clear? For the right, now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how it comes to us. For there is no distinction. Everybody's on the same ground. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way for us to be justified, verse 24, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, this Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation, a sin-atoning sacrifice by his blood, by his death on the cross, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be, on the one hand, just... And on the other, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is none righteous, no, not one. How does a holy God give you righteousness when you're unrighteous? How does he justify the ungodly? Well, he poured out all of his wrath, all of his justice on your sin onto Jesus. We'll revisit this in a minute. And because your sin has been paid for, we're just saying it, Joe, Jesus paid it all. God can now both be just, he's been just at the cross. That's where your sin was punished. But he can also, he can at the same time be just and, 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 and look at sinners like me and you and declare us righteous because Jesus paid it all for you. He's just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why he can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, right now, In fact, from the moment you trusted Jesus, can I say to you if you're here today and you don't know him, if today, in this hour, you trust Jesus, hear me, for you, you will be able in that very moment of faith to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for me. And so from the moment that you believe, brother or sister in Christ, from that moment forever, There will never, ever again be any condemnation for you. There is now and for eternity no condemnation for you. 
Does this not affect how you think about the answer to the question, what does God think of you right now? Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher of about a hundred and something years ago, said, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. How important is this question we're talking about today? If he's right, most of your trouble is because you forget how God thinks about you right now. You forget that if you're in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. You are free from God's condemnation. You know what some of us think in the church? I've had conversations with people. I'm talking people that were 60 years old. They they had been in church their whole life. They'd known Jesus for 40 years. Some of us in in the church of Jesus Christ believe this, that when we get saved, when we trust Jesus, that God gives us grace for all of our sins up to that point. We're good to there. All of our past sins, and maybe the ones on the day of our salvation. But then what we believe is that every day as we sin, we must confess those sins, and we, we take 1 John chapter 1, I believe, and we misunderstand the verse that says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. To forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We take that to mean that until we confess our sins in the Christian life, those sins have not been yet forgiven. I've had conversations with 60-year-old believers who the whole church would have said are mature in the Lord. They are close to Jesus and they truly with their heart, from their heart, believed that they needed to confess their sin in order for that sin to be forgiven as believers. Now, you say, oh, well, I'm glad we're all smarter than that, no better than that. I am too. I'm glad it's that, that you're that kind of church, but here's the deal. Whether you would ever admit to believing that, you practically act like that, and so do I. Amen? Because you and I forget that there is therefore now no... We know it. I hope you know it. If you didn't know that today... Come talk to me more. Let me just show you over and over through the Word of God. Your sins from beginning to end have been taken care of, wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. But we forget who know that theology, who have that doctrine down. Most of our troubles are due to the failure to realize the truth of this first. What does God think of you? How do you think of yourself Pastor Sam Storms said this, if you are in Christ Jesus, listen to these words, what does this verse mean? If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no valid reason why you should ever again experience fear or apprehension about your relationship with God or your eternal destiny. If you're resting in Jesus. Why? Because Paul said... For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. That means there's peace with God. That means God sees you as pure as Jesus. All of the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account and all of your sin has been paid in full. Wow. What a salvation.
As Wesley's old hymn, Amazing Love, says, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Is that the way you live? If you understand Romans 8, 1, that's how you can live. We are free from God's condemnation forever. Forever. I'm belaboring the point because we forget, okay? So it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. You do not wake up. Under the condemnation of God, if you're in Christ, if you're resting in his righteousness, you do not. Do you believe this gospel? If you're in Christ, it's true, whether you believe it or not. I mean, I guess if you don't believe it, it's not true for you, right? You're actually not in Christ if you don't believe it. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me? Are y'all awake? Can you touch the person next to you on the wrist only and check their pulse? Because I'm concerned. Okay. But here's the deal. Not everyone can say this. This verse is not for every person, is it? So just let me ask you, can you echo Paul's words? Do you know that... There is therefore now no condemnation from God towards me. Do you know it's true of you? Are you sure and certain that you are in Christ Jesus? Do you rest in him? That's the simple answer to the question. Do you, do you rest in him this morning? What about your neighbor? What about that coworker? What about that family member? Only 744 of 7.44 million Madurans in Indonesia can say this. Seven, I mean, I, don't even, I can't even do the math. I mean, I think it's still 7.44 that don't know him. So what do we need to do? For those of us who know it to be true that we are free from condemnation, we need to live in celebration of this freedom. We need to live every day with joy and worship and sacrifice, giving our lives to God for what He's done in Jesus. And we need to live for the proclamation of this freedom. We need to live in celebration of it, but we need to live for the proclamation of this freedom because there are many who cannot say this, millions and billions who can't say this. And here's the deal. It's up to you. It's up to me. To be the mouthpiece for that gospel by which God will save them. We are free from condemnation. But notice with me, secondly, this morning in in verse 2, we are free from the power of sin. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin 
and death. For the law of the Spirit of life, speaking of the Holy Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are not only free from condemnation, we are free from the power of sin. Though an up-and-down struggle against sin is the real and normal Christian life, we saw that last week in, in Romans 7 in the first part of Romans 8, though that's the real and normal Christian life, we listen, we do not have to continually lose the struggle. We can experience the power and the victory that Jesus, verse 2 tells us, has given us through His indwelling Spirit. Because we are not just free from condemnation, sin's penalty, we are free from sin's power. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does God think of you today? He says, you're pure. Pure as Jesus, and he says, you're empowered by the Spirit of God to be holy. How do you think of yourself? The law of the Spirit of life, you hear that? The law of the Spirit of life, the law of sin and death, the law of the Spirit of life can progressively be the power of holiness in our lives, in your life, in my life. Now, Paul is going to unfold how all of this works in the uh, verses that follow right down through verse 11 of Romans chapter 8. We'll be in that next week. But understand the simple and amazing and life-changing truth. We are free from the power of sin progressively as we grow in our relationship with Jesus who will empower us by His indwelling Spirit. We've seen there's going to be times we we try to deal with sin on our own. We battle against sin on our own, and we are wretched, and we lose the struggle. But there is a deliverer, Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who now lives in us by His Spirit, and the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We have power over sin. We can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. We can, we can, as those who are no longer under the condemnation of God, we can live in the power of the indwelling Christ. He's with us. How does God think about you today? How do you think of yourself in this moment? God sees us as pure as Jesus and empowered by His Spirit to overcome sin. Is that how you see you? Well, as we wrap up these four verses, who is the source of all of this freedom that we enjoy? I want you to see something in in verses 3 and 4 that's just awesome. Who is the source of all this freedom that we enjoy? It's our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are, thirdly, freed by God the Father through the work of the Son and the indwelling of the Spirit. Listen to what it says in verses 3 and 4. For God, 
the Father, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son, there's God the Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do who walk not according to the flesh, but according to third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. First, notice as we think about God being freed by God the Father through the work of the Son and by the indwelling of the Spirit. Notice first, because of our sinfulness... Verse 3 tells us that the law could neither pardon us from God's curse that it pronounced, nor could it, can it empower us to obey its precepts. Before Christ, we were condemned and enslaved by our own sin before holy God and His law. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the God's, here's God's law, here's you and me in our flesh, in our sinful nature. When those two things get together, though the law of God is perfect, holy, good, righteous, it cannot justify you. Why? Because of the weakness of your own flesh. The trouble's not with the law. We talked about this last week. The trouble's with me. The trouble's with my flesh, my sinfulness. Verse 3 says that God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. What What does that mean? It means he's pardoned us for breaking all the law. And he's empowered us to keep the law. Isn't that amazing? The law tells you what to do, what not to do, but gives you no power to do it. Right? And all the law ends up doing because of our sinfulness, not the not nothing wrong with the law. The law condemns us. Because we fall short of the glory of God time and time and time again. So because of our sinfulness, the law could neither pardon us from God's curse it pronounces nor empower us to obey its precepts. We were condemned and enslaved by our own sin before holy God and His law, but God did it. He pardoned us and He empowered us. How did He do it? Secondly, see here at the end of verse 3, Jesus was condemned for our sin that we might never be condemned. Again, we've been talking about this, but here he kind of unfolds it a little bit more. And he says, this is how I, I did what the law couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Whose sin? For whose sin did he send Jesus? Mine. Yours. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. You and I are human beings, right? We're in the flesh. We've sinned against holy God. What Paul's saying here is the only fitting substitute has to become one of us, has to share in our flesh. So God became man. God the Son became Jesus of Nazareth. He became the perfect God-man in our place so that God could then make a like sacrifice for those of us who had sinned against him. And he condemned sin in the flesh. 
Jesus wasn't a mirage. He wasn't just a ghost or, or, or some, some kind of apparition. He had a, a flesh and blood body. And God poured out on him his wrath as if it were us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was condemned for our sin that we might never be condemned again. 1 Peter 2, 24 puts it this way. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And quoting from Isaiah 53, he says, By his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. Isaiah 53, we'll be all over this in a couple weeks around Good Friday. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says, Surely he, speaking of Jesus 800 years before he came, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But that wasn't what was going on. God was not out with Jesus. God was, in fact, Jesus was, in fact, being pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But notice thirdly in verse 4, Jesus died and rose again that we might live out God's holy ways by the power of his indwelling spirit. So Jesus did all this. God the Father did all this through Christ. Through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, he did all this, verse 4 says, in order that. That's a purpose statement. Here's why Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, at least in part. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what does it mean that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? Well, it can mean a couple of things, and perhaps in this passage it means both. I'll tell you which one I think it it leans heaviest on. It could mean that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as our perfect substitute, God credits all of his righteousness to us. This could be a a, a reference back to our justification. The righteous requirement of God met in us because we are now in Christ. But it it could also mean, and I believe I lean this way, uh, that, that primarily and contextually, that this is what it means, I believe he died, he lived, died, and rose again for us as our substitute and now indwells us by his spirit so that on a daily basis we can live holy lives, which means the requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. We can actually obey God and live holy as he is holy. Not perfectly, not all the time, not consistently. With perfect consistency. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why do I believe that? Because of what it says next. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it is the Spirit of God that enables us to fulfill the law, to obey the law, to do what God says do, to not do what God says not to do. Amen? First Peter 2, 24 puts it this way. We just read it, but I I skipped part of the verse. Here's the full verse. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that, for the purpose that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, he did not just die for you to free you from condemnation, though he did, and we've rejoiced in that this morning. But according to Romans 8, 
4, and according to Romans 8, 2, and according to 1 Peter 2, 24, he died for you. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might walk in step with the Spirit and fulfill the law. Be obedient to the commands of God. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you see, we're not just free from sin's penalty and and the condemnation of a just and holy God. We are free from sin's power. We are free indeed. We have the power of his indwelling spirit. Jesus' purpose in living, dying, and rising from the dead in your place was to enable your holiness. So you see, when, 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 if we just stop with justification, we've missed half of salvation. If we just say all it means to be saved is to be justified, to have peace with God, and we say, you know, and, and, and from there you can kind of take it or leave, like, like, like holiness is not necessary, sanctification is not necessary, then we've missed something because these verses that we just read say he died in order to cause us to die to sin and live to righteousness, to change our lives, to sanctify us. All by his spirit. And what's amazing is Ezekiel 36, listen to this. Romans 8, by the way, is, is kind of the unpacking of what this prophecy from Ezekiel in five, about five, late, mid-500s B.C., what it meant. God, through the prophet, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put, which new spirit am I going to put in you? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Almost 600 years before Jesus was born, that prophecy about what the new covenant blessings would include was given. And God said, when Jesus comes... He's going he's to take care of things through his life, death, and resurrection in such a way that the result is my spirit comes to live within you and causes you to walk in my ways. That's the gospel. That's amazing news. God sees every believer as pure as Jesus and empowered by his spirit to grow in holiness. He, it, it, it's, it's a prophetic fulfillment from Ezekiel. Remember those students we talked about at the first? Somewhere in their spiritual formation, they were taught either explicitly or implicitly that what mattered was not God's love for them, His grace to them, the righteousness of Christ given to them, but how much they could accomplish for Him. 
I pray that that's not the case for anybody here, but the chances are it is. The likelihood says in a room with this many people that some of you think that God is very disappointed in you because you as his child struggle with sin. Matt Chandler said, the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail, when you sin. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you run to God, to the throne of grace with confidence Knowing what God thinks of you right now, that he sees you as pure as Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to change and to grow in holiness. You see, if you don't approach the throne in your moment of sin with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. In fact, Chandler goes on to say, you are most offensive to God when you come to Him with all of your efforts when you're still trying to earn what He has freely and yet at great cost given to you. You know what you say about Jesus when you don't run to God in full confidence right after you sin? When you run away from Him and hide? like Adam and Eve in the garden, you say Jesus wasn't enough. I don't believe it. He didn't pay it all. He's not all the righteousness I need, and I'm going to make myself feel better by going over here and just kind of sulking. I realize you really don't want to speak to me right now. When God himself says Christ is enough, don't dishonor my son who died on the cross for you. And my throne is called a throne of grace, and you are meant... To, to leave the place of sin, the moment of sin, the thoughts that you're having, and run to me and know that I'm your dad, and I want you to climb up on that throne. I want you to get up in my lap. I want, me to, I want you to agree with me about what you just did, but I want you to leave my throne room reminded about what I think about you. And what I think about you is I see you just as pure as Jesus, and I've empowered you by the Spirit. Next time around, you don't have to do what you just did. You have power to overcome. And son, go get it. Honey, go after it. Run in the path of holiness because your Father loves you. And he's given you everything you need for obedience. What do you do when you fail in sin? God sees every believer as pure as Jesus and empowered by his spirit to grow in holiness. And that is how we must see ourselves. Let's pray together.